Good morning, heart and soul. <laughs> so uh, last week, I was in um, South Carolina for our uh, Centers for Spiritual Living convention. And so I bring you greetings from uh, Charleston, North Car South Carolina. And I just want to say what a good time. And I haven't always, just full disclosure, I haven't always had a good time. <laughs> this time was very, very different. Centers for Spiritual Living is clearly moving through to a greater realization and a way of practicing what we absolutely believe in terms of diversity and inclusion and finding the space for all truly wonderful time. You know, because we announced it here a number of times consistently, that our dear brother, Dr. Sean Jenright, was the keynote speaker. And so that was, that by the time he spoke, a consciousness and experience had already been set. And I just have to say, it took my breath away. Kind of blew the top of my head off, frankly. It was, it was so well done, so inclusive. There were those who, um, because I wrote the guides for February, there were certainly a number of people who appreciated it, appreciated the guides, and there were those who spoke to me about how difficult it was for them, and yet, they were willing, they, and yet they appreciated it. Now, I know that there were those who had difficulty and they didn't yet appreciate it. I, my prayer is that in due time, in due time, there will come a sense of appreciation for the truth that I endeavored to tell. Um, so, it was a very, very good time, and part of what, um, what was on the schedule also for the convention was an outing to the International African American Museum there in South Carolina, which is rather a new museum and uh, so beautifully done. And so I had one little slide that uh, represents, okay, so that's, uh, that's me and not Deb. At the, <laughs> at the museum, and, uh, and then, you know, one of their shots, but it's beautifully done, and if you're there, I just encourage you to have the experience of the museum, um, because they have done a beautiful, beautiful job of recording history, and so have we. 
When I returned, now of course, uh, before I left, the muralist had already begun the work. Are y'all liking what you see? Yes, yes. And so uh, we're not quite done yet, but you can see that it's on its way. And once they are finished, my since we gotta have a celebration. Yeah. We just have to celebrate, yes. But I'm, I'm just grateful for that. And also, I want to give a shout out to our um, beautification and facilities team because every week, every week this month, they have offered us a new altar. A new altar. And this is the final week of Black History um, Month. And so they're giving us sci science, I should say, and inventors. And well, check it out. Just be sure you check it out. Yes, yes. And we also have, I am so joyful because Melanie Damore is with us once again. It's been way too long. Can I just say that out loud? Because that's what's on my heart is it's been way too long, and my intention is that we never go this long again without seeing our beloved Melanie Damore. And so I leave you in her capable hands now. Hey, Pam. Always good to be in the presence of heart and soul. And so, Back in the day, I wrote this song for Heart and Soul, and I will expect loud singing and harmony. I'm gonna stand like Mother Moses stood and keep moving on. I'm gonna stand like Mother Moses stood and keep moving on. I'm gonna stand like Mother Moses stood and keep moving on. Stand like Mother Moses stood. Keep moving on and keep moving on. 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 Stand like Mother Moses stood. I'm gonna lead like Mother Moses led and keep leading on. I'm gonna lead like Mother Moses led and keep leading on. I'm gonna lead like Mother Moses led and keep moving on. Lead like Mother Moses led. Here we go. Keep leading on. Keep leading on. Keep leading on. Keep leading on, keep leading on, keep leading on. Lead like Mother Moses led. I'm gonna sing like Mother Moses sang. Keep singing on. I'm gonna sing like Mother Moses sang and keep singing on. I'm gonna lead like Mother Moses sang and keep singing on. Sing like Mother Moses sang and keep singing on. Keep singing on. 
keep singing on keep singing on keep singing on keep singing on sing like mother moses sang last one i'm gonna walk like mother moses walked and keep walking on i'm gonna walk like mother moses walked and keep walking on i'm gonna walk like mother moses walked and keep walking on walk like mother moses walked keep walking on keep walking on keep walking on keep walking on Keep walking on, keep walking on. Walk like Mother Moses walked. Move like Mother Moses moved. Pray like Mother Moses prayed. <laughs> Thank you, Melanie. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Heart and soul, one of the things uh, that I have always loved about that song that, that Melanie wrote out of our, but the way that we pay homage to Mother Harriet, um, is this notion of, I think you'd understand if I say it like this, that the world just do what it do. And there is that that we must be about. So while the world is doing whatever it does, we're going to walk like Mother Moses walked. While the world is doing whatever it's up to, we're going to sing like Mother Moses sang. We're going to pray like she prayed. The world is doing what it does, however it is. So there's nothing about, about what we study and endeavor to practice that says that the world still won't have its machinations, that, that there won't be stuff going on, that there'll still be wars and rumors of wars. What it, what it does is it changes how we see the world. It changes how we interact with the world, what we believe is happening and what it means. Absent this philosophy and its teaching, we might have different conclusions about what's happening, and about what it means to, to each of us. And hmm, what it means for us in the moment and what it means for us in the future. I'll give you just this simple example that, that for some, when, when, when a situation, a circumstance unfolds that is difficult, sometimes the response can be, it's always going to be like this which is a very defeatist attitude because it says that whatever that is that just happened within that five-minute period or that five-month period, or it might have been a five-year period. But some of us have had enough birthdays where five years we just chuckle. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the five-year, five-year, I had so many five-year periods at this point. 
that, but you, you see, when you're in it, if you don't know, if you don't understand how life got to be the way it is, it can appear to be complete devastation. Oh, we just, let's just give it up right now. It's four and a half years. It can't get better. I'm here to tell you that until it's over, it's not over. If you're still drawing breath, there's another opportunity. Somebody would say you can go another further. And what you're deciding, so, so look here. See, right, right here is, is the first thought. The thought of, of let's say it's, it's based on, on somebody's prediction, what somebody is saying. You know, some of us grew up at a time where in school folks would just announce, you ain't going to be nothing. You know, if you couldn't get that bit of homework, that meant you were never going to be able to succeed. Lord, I'm hoping folks aren't acting this way now. But it used to be very, very common if your mother had certain situation circumstance, if your father had a certain situation circumstance, it was clear that you were, that's what you were going to have. You weren't going to have better than that even though there's not a one of us who doesn't already know that there are so many stories, so many testimonies of folks who came up in X and lived in Y. Yes, and we're not bound by X and the generational whatever it was. I was just talking to somebody who was, who was um, celebrating in their own way uh, about having surpassed whatever had been predicted for them and their family. And so it's important for us to see ourselves as empowered to pray and walk and move regardless of the circumstances. Now, we're not going to pretend like it isn't a circumstance, but what we're going to declare to the circumstance is you have no power over me. You're a circumstance, shown enough, but you do not. Now, look, wait, let me be clear. It could have power over you, depending upon what you do with it. So it's not like it can't have. It can if you give it away. And giving away the, your power is a lot easier than it sounds. It can be as simple as refusing to... Pardon me, I was just distracted by the fact that the light has... Oh, okay. Uh, Ron, help me please. I wasn't ready for it, fortunately, but it got my attention, so I thought I'd get ready. That this notion of something not having power over us is such a slippery slope because what it requires is an active intention. The slippery slope, the, the more automatic, is to give way. To give way to what the landlord said to give way to what the pundits say is going to happen or isn't going to happen. It's, it's, 
it's so easy to, <laughs> you know, I told y'all, do not go to, well, you do what you want to do. But I simply suggested, do not go up into the doctor's office by yourself. And it's because for some of us generationally, the little white coat and a stethoscope, that little combination, just immediately renders us powerless. Thank you. I was trying to figure out a word I could say on mic. And powerless works really well, really well. It, it, have you, I've been there. Because if you have a little something, you know, whatever it is, you're, whoever you see first, you don't see them about that no more. They start making the referral. And depending upon what it is, they can refer you way out of your comfort zone. You, y'all, so the referrals just keep going. And finally, you're sitting with somebody. Now, by the time you get to the chair, the knees are useless. Your little brain is spinning. Because you've already made up a story about whatever it is, yes? Now, this can be a medical situation, but sometimes go to the bank. Meet with the people about your credit. And it's no different. Don't go by yourself. Somebody has to be the one to take the notes and do the praying. Do you understand what I'm saying? Somebody, so, so you sit there because they think they're talking to you, but you really can just let them be like this. You, you've seen those cartoons that say, here's what a cat hears? And it's just, yeah, exactly. They don't know nothing about you, and you're just all up in there trying to do. So you be like, they're the cat, or you the cat. You're the cat, and they're talking to you. But have somebody who's taking the notes because you may have to do some research. You may have to get another three opinions about your credit, about your health, about the children at school. Oh, oh, okay. Go on up into the principal's office about your children. Do you see what I'm saying? All of those are the same because they render us to this point of feeling powerless. Because whoever the principal is, is behind the desk, and you're not. Or wherever the agency is that you're going to. Is this making sense? So there's something that we are responsible for individually, which is our own consciousness. What we are thinking and allowing to get through in any given moment. This is this is a challenging um, and yet relevant point during black history because it's so easy with black history because we're talking about the story. We're, we're, we're giving the testimonies. I am absolutely fascinated to the point of, of just moving out of my own life and into just the, the recollection of, of how folks got over. The perseverance. How'd they do that? How did they stand in and keep moving on? How'd they do that? Mother Harriet, how'd y'all get up in the... You know, for us, 
in our little queen beds and king beds and bedroom sets and bedroom suites and all the things. Something happened and we can barely get up. I can't, I just, I don't even want to get up. Just, I just, no, not today. I'm just going to stay in bed today. I'm like Mother Harriet. How'd y'all get up? How'd y'all get up every day? Harriet Jacobs, how did you hide out for seven years in a crawl space? How'd you do that? And sometimes I just say, give me some of that. When I'm getting ready to whine about something, come on, Harriet Jacobs, help me out with this. Because I know whatever I'm going through does not compare. And of course, I'm not encouraging you to compare situations and circumstances. I'm encouraging you to claim your power over the situation and circumstance. And I'm encouraging you to be familiar with history so you can see and hear and read about some folks who have done that. When every possible stimuli would say you're enslaved, and ain't nothing you can do about that. It'll be another hundred years for there'll be any change. And yet somebody got up and walked off. What? See, I need some of that. Don't we all? Don't we all need some of that? That even though the command is no, that within you there's a yes that is so strong that that no doesn't stop you at all. Not at all. See, I don't think y'all understand because you like in your seats, you, what we got going on? I need this? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So look. Any time... I'm sharing, at least for me, when I'm sharing these stories, I'm wanting, I have to sometimes remind myself I'm not really in it. You know, like it's not literally my story that I wasn't there. Because sometimes, and I have that kind of imagination, well, I'll just be in it. You know, and I'll have more detail than maybe actually exist about the thing. So look, I want to share with y'all a little bit. In the guides that I wrote for February, I almost said Thanksgiving, and yes, for Thanksgiving, for Thanksgiving, for February 25th and 26th, because it's a continuing, frankly, 27 is part of the story too, but I, I'm not going, I know I won't have time, because I'm already just, well, so I won't have time for that. So where I want to start is on February 25th, in the guide, I'm talking about Africatown. I'm talking about Oluwale Kosola and Africatown. And Zora Neale Hurston really is the first person who told us about, um, who went to Africatown and interviewed the folks there. And I'm trying to think of the name of the... Uh, with a B, um, anyhow. So um, here's what 
Zora Neale Hurston wrote. She said, all these words from the cellar, but not one word from the soul. Do y'all understand what she's talking about? So all of these were, all, we got all the stories from the enslavers, but not much at all from the enslaved. And that's, that's what she's saying. She's saying the thoughts of the black ivory, the coin of Africa, and it's really important that we understand the value that African folks were to enslavers in these United States, frankly, Spain which is, and Portugal, where well, they kind of started the party in its own way. And then certainly in um, England, what we call Great Britain and, and United Kingdom, etc., because whole economies were built on the back of enslaved Africans. All right? So this idea of the black ivory, knowing that ivory has always been held as valuable. So this is black ivory, and it's the coin of Africa. And the pretense is that it had no market value. I call it just the myth, the, the, the myth that's been perpetrated. You know, the myth that black folks are shiftless and lazy? So right, you build a boat, launch it, cross the ocean, taking months at a time to go buy, purchase, pay for shiftless, lazy people. That happens all the time, don't it? <laughs> Likely or not. Not. Yeah, and then, so you've done that part, and then you've got to get them back as many as can make it back. And then the greater evidence is then you can put them on the auction block and write about the value of the same folks that the moment you can't do that, they're now shiftless and lazy. Oh, and then you, then of course, the, the rest of the myth is then you begin to <clears throat> question cleanliness and all the things of the people who nursed the babies and fed the families. I'm just, okay, all right, all right. So she goes on to say, because this notion of no market value is just outrageous. But that's the implication because you just have to, to keep the lie. I imagine it's... Um, Okay, let me stay here then. So, Africa's ambassadors to the New World have come and worked and died and left their spore, but no recorded thought. So she has come, and she's meeting with them, and she's recording, which is how we know uh, as much as we know about, about this. So, um, what she is talking about is Cujo Lewis, whose African name was Oluwale Kosola. Now, in these last days, after, after it was illegal to import enslaved people, 
to traffic in human, in, to traffic in Africans. Because in black AF history, what you get is correcting the language. You know, we've been trained to call it, we've been trained to frame slavery in very neutral, non-offensive terms. But now, you know, there are so many campaigns about trafficking women and children, and we call it that for a reason. And, and you know, we, we've switched where, where we, might, we might have said that, that the child, whatever they did with the child, and now we call it abuse. You know, if, be it in the family or wherever it is. So there's something about getting the language right. So this was trafficking, if you will, trafficking in humans. So what happened here is the last known survivor, the last known slave ship to enter the U.S. was the Clotilda. And um, the man who... This is, we're talking about Cujo Lewis, who was born around 1840. The interesting thing about these stories for the folks who were on those last ships is they got here about five years before slavery ended. So they still understood their own language, they still had their culture, they still, folks who were enslaved for hundreds of years, those generations, lost a lot of that. They lost the language, they lost any, any a clear connection to the continent. But these last ships that came, those folks were only enslaved, actively, formally enslaved. Now I know enslavement continued under other names. But the formal enslavement only went on for another five years or so. So those folks, as you can imagine, would still, they'd still know their name. They'd still know their birth name. They'd still have memories of the families and from whence they'd come. And this man <clears throat> is one of those. And he talked about from whence he had come. What I want to um, share with you. So this, if you'll go to the next one, please. Because the plaque that is, the plaque that is there says that he is the last known survivor of the last known slave ship to enter the United States. He's a native of the Yoruba tribe, which is, um, is now West African country of Benin, is how we would know it. And so he understood that, he knew that, and he wanted to go back and try to make some arrangements that he could pay, but it never it never worked, and we're not aware of anyone who was able to, to work that out and get back because there, typically there were just no resources afforded, even though folks were freed, that's all it was. You know, if it was even that. And I'm using freed in quotes, in italics, and invisible ink. <clears throat> Ernest Holmes says that real unity cannot exclude anything. And I want you to hold that, that in mind. So <clears throat> the other piece of this is how we got there, is that um, I'd already told you, <clears throat> pardon me, that the 
1807 Act prohibited the importation. See, see how we language? The importation of slaves versus the trafficking in human life. So uh, here we have Timothy Maher, who is a wealthy American human trafficker, slave trader, and businessman who built and owned the last known U.S. slave ship, the Clotilda. And who did this? I think PBS is where, frankly, I forget where I saw the documentary, but there is a documentary about the Clotilda and the folks in Africatown. So I encourage you to take a look at that. So it is said that in 1859, while gambling, he made a bet of $1,000 with a wealthy friend that he could smuggle Africans as slaves into the U.S. despite that act. So what is believed is that what was going on at that time in 1859 is that there was another ship, there was a yacht, the Wanderer, who did the same thing that he's about to do, and they charged him. And so that's what's in the news, if you will. That's the word. That's what's going on, that this guy who had the Wanderer and um, had folks on, and I'm going to tell you about that in a bit, but I just want to establish this, that Maher is aware of that. And so he's emboldened, I say like I know him. And um, so he, he sets up the bet that he could get away with it. That guy got arrested, or was charged, I should say. Um, so he employs the service of a captain, and on March 4th, 1860, the Clotilda, a ship that he built for the sole purpose of this voyage, sailed to Africa with a crew of 12. The ship arrived in what we call Benin now on May 15th, 1860, where Foster, the ship's captain, had the ship outfitted to carry Africans. Because going, it's a ship. Coming back, it's a trafficking vehicle. So, um, so they had taken the materials and they just had to have it worked on so that they could bring back these folks. So they purchased 110 human Africans um, at, for $100 each. I need somebody who's some, look that, do the conversion for today, if you will, convert $100 in 1860 um, for what it would be today. Um, and research reveals that most of those folks were Yoruba people from the interior of present-day Nigeria. So he sailed back on this ship and arrived um, in Mississippi on July 9th, 1860. And, um, and the idea they had to secret this is what happened. So this had to be under cover of darkness. And so they do, they pull the ship in under darkness and get the folks off and, and then they dispose of the ship. So they sink it and burn it uh, to hide the evidence. They sold some of the slaves and then kept some, he and his brother kept some, um, and then, so remember, that's 1860. So in 1865, what happens? Y'all better. Come on now. All right. So 
thank you. Okay, so now it's three thousand. It's uh, essentially thirty-seven hundred dollars for shiftless, lazy people. I'm just saying. Yes. Do Do you understand that sometimes it's important to monetize it? Because otherwise, you can, you, you can catch yourself speaking about it in language that you would not use under any other situation. We've been trained well to live in this cesspool of a history. And it's, there's a point at which when we begin to change our language, we begin to frame it in a different way. Here's what's important to me, is that everything I'm saying should only change you in terms of your resolve to know better. This is not a, we're going to get upset about this and forget the point. Because I think historically, there's been a lot of that. Where there's, you get it and you just, now you just rendered upset. The challenge with that is upset really does something to you. It renders you less empowered, less capable, less able to do what must be done and be your highest self. We can use our upset to just wear us out so that we never get to a point where we are persevering, where we are moving on regardless of what's happening, to know that there is that within us that empowers us to move on. But it's important that you know what you're moving on from. See, it's a both and. I know many of us grew up with uh, families, grew up a part of families where we were aware that the folks in our in our history, who in our family history, who had been enslaved refused to talk about it. And we can understand that it was so awful. The way you see it in the movies does not, you know, come on now. It's not a movie situation. So what we have seen does not compare at all. Oh, so many things, so many things. So look, um, okay, so he brought it back to the enslaved people and he did the maneuvering. But you see, you can't win the bet if you don't tell nobody. I'm just trying to keep it real, right? You can't have no bet and get the money unless you, somebody has to know. So if one person knows, two, three people know, you know what that's like. They didn't play the game of telephone, and now the folks know. So I call it hiding in plain sight because the ship was burned. You can't burn a ship that don't smell nothing. I'm trying to make this plain. So the people knew. So, sure enough, they brought charges, but they couldn't, they couldn't convict him. I just, we just don't know how that could be. But it's just, it just turns out that that's the way history records it. They just didn't have enough evidence. So look, look, May of 2021, some very specific information because now we have ways of determining. You know, now they can find the wood from it and they can know definitively that it's that ship. 
And that's what they did with the Clotilda. However, remember I told you about the Wanderer? That's the one that kind of got his attention. He's like, I can do that and only better. So look, I want to tell you about the Wanderer because the Wanderer was a yacht that trafficked enslaved Africans again during that same period. So the Wanderer was an opulent pleasure yacht with a sinister underside, a hidden deck where hundreds of enslaved Africans were held captive and illegally trafficked into the United States. So now we're almost, at this point, we're 165 years after the final voyage. And now we're getting the information about the people who survived the transatlantic crossing and went on to live in the American South. So uh, what we find is, what we find is, I got my little notes here. Okay, so although it was prohibited, okay. Uh, okay, here we go. So... William Corey and Charles Lamar are two prominent advocates for the reopening of international slave trade. So although in 1808 it's illegal and it's supposed to stop, there are folks who are doing it. These are just two cases that we know of very specifically. So he purchased a yacht in 1858, and even though, remember I told you 1808, so 50, 50 years after it's illegal, He's determined, this is because he's wanting some shiftless, lazy workers. I just want to make sure we're clear what's happening here. So had it retrofitted to hold captives, installing a hidden deck and a 15,000-gallon freshwater tank. In July of 1858, the ship left port while flying the pennant, the flag of the New York Yacht Club where Corey was a member. The crew sailed to West Africa, to the west coast of Africa, where they purchased almost 500, in, where they trafficked 500 enslaved bodies, most of them teenage boys, the most shiftless lazy. Many of the enslaved people died on the six-week voyage, but 400 made it to Georgia where they were then sold in slave markets across the South. In 2018, this is what was, was reported about a survivor who was later known as Ward Lee, and he was freed five years, of course, after he got here, but remained stranded in a foreign country. So all of those folks who came over then were literally just stranded, um, like everybody else. And he pinned a letter seeking help returning to Africa. And it read, I am bound for my old home if God be with me. But he wasn't able. He never got the support and was not able to uh, return home. His great-great-grandson, Michael Higgins, said that he became a skilled artisan and he recalled his grandmother telling stories about her grandfather while holding a walking cane that he carved, a beautiful walking cane. And she, all, she said he always talked about how he had to keep the family together. And my sense is that that's how they walked on. They did their best to try to stay together. They created, like Africatown, they created these enclaves that where they could 
still be in touch as much as they could with their culture and still have some remembrance and some of the rituals and um, the cultural uh, patterns that, that were set. So in this, in this um, one of the quotes I use is Theodore Dwight Weld, who's an abolitionist, who was an abolitionist, who said, every person knows that slavery is a curse. Whoever denies this, that one's lips libel their heart. Because there's no way that any of us could possibly believe otherwise. So there is a slide with the guy holding the wood. That is, he was one of the divers that was looking for the Clotilda. And what's interesting is that the people in the town knew, you know, because it was right off from the man's land. And you could understand why that would be, because he could control who could get in and out. But now we're in the 21st century, and he's not there, and the, you know, all the things. So, um, so we know, we're beginning to, to put together what we can know about those times and, and what can happen. I want to leave you with the words of Bayard Rustin, who I also wrote about on one of these days in here, who says that we are all one. And if we don't know it, we'll learn it the hard way. This notion, this requirement for us to lead with love, that life is lifing, you know? Life is doing what it do. And how we see it is based on what we believe, how we interact with life, what we think is happening has everything to do with how we are in terms of our inner self. What are we believing is happening here? I caution you to not stay in upset. One, it's costly health-wise, and it renders you ineffective in whatever the next step is. And what we know for sure must be done is that whatever is happening, we have still got to put one foot in front of the other, not give up hope, know that none of us is alone. There's that that we have to know. It's what Bayard said. We have to understand and trust oneness no matter what. We got work to do. You got to figure it out and put one foot in front of the other and lead in love. I give you <laughs> Melanie Damore.
You gotta put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Put, sing, one foot in front of the other and lead with love. You gotta put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Put in front of the other and lead with love. Don't give up hope. You're not alone. Don't you give up. Keep moving on. So we got to put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. You got to put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Lift up your eyes. Don't you despair. Look up ahead. The path is there. So you gotta put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. You gotta put and lead with love. Put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. I know you're scared. And I'm scared too. But here I am. Right next to you. So we gotta put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. One foot in front of the other and lead with love. You gotta put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Put one foot in front of the other and lead with love and lead and lead with and lead and lead and lead. And Lee, come on, come on, family. Where?